Southeast Mortgage, the official home loan lender of the Georgia Bulldogs, presents the official podcast of Dogs on Demand on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. On today's program, we'll give you the latest news from the world of University of Georgia Athletics and more. And now, from the broadcast studios of Dogs on Demand, here's your host, Chris Hall. Chris Hall here for Dogs on Demand on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. It's good to have you with us today on our program. And today we have with us Jason Hasty. Uh, Jason works with the University of Georgia. He's the athletics historian and archivist at the University of Georgia. And uh, Jason, now, first of all, did I get your title correct? Or do I need to add something? We want to make sure we get you right. Is that correct? That is correct. You know, the university has an official title for me, but don't worry about that. Uh, athletics historian and archivist is what what I do and what people know me as. That's right. Feel free to add any titles. I'm always glad to pick up another title every once in a while. So if you can come up with a good one, let me know, and I might add it on my business card. Very good. So, of course, you work for the University of Georgia, and you keep up with all the cool stuff, all the history stuff having to do with uh, Georgia athletics uh, I, I thought we'd start our program today by showing you a card that uh, that we have. It it comes from well, one of the yearbooks here. I don't know if you can see that uh, very clearly, but this sure. is a picture of the first University of Georgia football team. Now we're celebrating an anniversary of that, and and th- this is the uh, story of the the very first football team ever uh, fielded by the University of Georgia. And I know you're very familiar with that. Oh, tell, sure. us the, tell us the story behind that. So it was January 30th, 1892 is really the uh, birthday of Georgia football. It was on that day on what's now called Herdy Field, uh, which is a lovely park and a fountain uh, with a fountain on it now uh, on campus. I'm sure most people, if they've been through campus, have walked across Herdy Field, uh, certainly going down to Sanford from downtown. They walked through it maybe even seen a historical marker on the field, noting that it's a historic athletics ground. But back in 1892, that area wasn't very lush. It was pretty much just a brown dirt, rocks, uh, an old field that the school used for pretty much any kind of outdoor athletic activities that they had. Students would congregate after that. Of course, university was fairly small back then. We're talking 400, maybe 500 students total. Uh, I think there are classes that are probably bigger than that now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and it was all male back then, of course. And after class in the afternoon or on the weekends, the students would congregate on, on that old field to, you know, throw balls around, play baseball, play, you know, run, track, whatever they wanted to do. Uh, there was a small cadet corps on campus, as most universities back then had to cadet corps and they would parade there and do their marching there so it was just kind of an all-purpose field and we had actually had some football games uh, on campus before 1892 they were not intra-collegiate games we were not playing other universities there was basically just groups of guys getting involved in intramural sports and they'd hang out and play a game of football and do what 18-year-old guys do. They run and tackle each other probably a little too hard. 
have a good time after class. But so Charles Hurdy was a, a chemistry professor, and he had gone to school at Johns Hopkins up in Baltimore, and uh, evidently seen the game of football being played at Johns Hopkins. Uh, so he became interested in it. He bought a rule book, and he came back down here to Georgia, and he was a Georgia alum, and he organized a team, uh, an actual proper team of guys who wanted to play football. And he taught them the rules out of the rule book. They had a football already. Of course, footballs back then were not the sleek footballs we have now, but they were big round balls, kind of more like a beach ball or a basketball. And he organized a game. Uh, he organized two games. One was against Mercer and one was against Auburn. Uh, the Mercer game was uh, here in Athens, January 30th, 1892. Uh, kind of a weird time now to think about having a football game, but uh, that's when they could get it together. And of course, there was nothing like an established tradition of when you would have a football season back then. So they just did it when they needed to. And um, we beat Mercer 50 to nothing on a Saturday afternoon in Athens. Now, there is a great story. And, and I've never been able to confirm it. I, I've heard about it from a couple of sources. I, I'd like to think it's true. The gentleman who was scoring the game uh, left at some point during the game to walk downtown to the city's official alcohol dispensary <laughs> where you could legally buy alcohol. Oh. And that closed at dusk. So he wanted to get there and get his bottle of whiskey for the weekend before it closed, and he apparently missed a touchdown. So the score might have actually been worse, but the guy who was in charge of actually scoring the game was out, you know, basically tailgating. Uh, or getting ready for a tailgate. <laughs> That's where tailgating began. There you go. <laughs> it's the most Georgia football story possible, uh, oh. honestly. And, oh. and really, from that's where it all began. I mean, very modest. There weren't 95,000 people on hand. There were a couple, maybe a couple hundred very curious spectators who'd heard about this game and wanted to see it played. And uh, that was the beginning, just a very, very humble beginning. Isn't that something? And, uh, of course, to where we are now with, uh, you know, back-to-back -back national championships. Oh, yeah. The University of Georgia football team. Now, uh, you are the uh, an athletic history specialist. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for uh, the uh, the library there at the University of Georgia. Mm -hmm. So, kind of kind of go through. You know, is there a special section where uh, athletic, uh, you know, uh, uh, his history items can be found and books and that kind of thing? Is there a special section in the library where that's found? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I work for the uh, one of these archival libraries uh, at the university, and there are three of us, uh, three of the libraries, uh, arch archival libraries. And I work for the Hargrit Rare Book and Manuscript Library, which is the biggest of the three, and we encompass a lot of different things, but we also have the University Archives and the Athletic Association Archives. So we are in the Russell Special Collections Building, uh, which is a relatively new building on campus. We've been here for about 10 years now. And if, if anyone is familiar with the new Terry College campus, we share that quad with Terry College. So we're behind Morris Hall and the Baptist Center and across from the Terry College and across from the North Avenue, or North Campus parking deck. Uh, so we are open to the public. Anybody who wants to see anything at all relating to UGA sports history can come in here. No one, if you want to see the archives, you don't have to be a member of the UGA community. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to have any ties to UGA. 
you can really just be someone who is interested in seeing this uh, and come up, we'll find things for you. The Athletic Association Archive is massive. Uh, one of the ways that we kind of uh, calculate the, 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 the size of a collection is by shelf space. We call it linear, uh, linear feet, yeah. uh, how much shelf space it takes up. And the Athletic Association Archives takes up just over 300 linear feet of shelf space. So appropriately just over a football field in length, yeah. oh, wow. if you put it all together. So there's there's plenty of stuff for anyone to see. And again, it's it's totally open to the public. We're, we're happy to have people come in and, and see it. Talk about some of the uh, interesting items, interesting to you. You know, the, the, that that's interesting to you that if uh, someone comes uh, to your section uh, at the uh, uh, Hargrid Rare Book and uh, Manuscript Library will find. Uh, tell us some of the uh, cool things that are cool to you. Oh, sure. Wow. And this could honestly take hours. Yeah. Um, there's there's so much in this collection and so much that's really fascinating. I'll, I'll tell you a couple of uh, relatively recent things that we've gotten in uh, and relatively recent being the past few years. Um, I think, of course, every Georgia fan knows the, the great win at the Rose Bowl right. uh, over Oklahoma. We have the gloves that Sonny Michelle was wearing when he scored the winning touchdown in the Rose Bowl and the football that he carried into the end zone. Uh, so we have uh, Stetson Bennett's armband, uh, his play call wristband from our his first national championship game. We have the wristbands that Keeley was wearing when he scored the pick six against Alabama. We have A.D. Mitchell's towel. And those are just some more relatively recent things, but uh, actually just brought came into possession of uh, three new photos of the 1897 team. And of course, the 1897 team is, was marred by tragedy. Uh, Richard Von Albade, Von Gammon, uh, was a football player on that team, and uh, he was tragically killed in a game against Virginia in, in 1897. And so having three new photos of that team, including one which shows Von Gammon very clearly, uh, is, is very exciting for me as a historian to have that. But beyond that, you know, uniforms, Frank Sinkwich's jersey from 1941. Wow. We have a signed a, a jersey signed by every member of the team that played in the first our first ever Rose uh, Orange Bowl against TCU. Uh, appropriately enough, since we yeah. just yeah. <laughs> um, so you know these these are things that just jump out to me that I find particularly interesting. Are you are you um, always on the hunt for items? Uh, you know, as much as you have stored and uh, you have acquired, I'm sure there's always something else. You know, is is there like a holy grail of uh, Georgia football that you haven't, you, you know, it's out there, but you haven't gotten it yet? Is there something you're searching for? Oh, goodness. You know, that's always a good question because there's always something else out there. And, and we rely so much on people bringing in donations and and bringing in things that they found in their closets or their grandparents or great grandparents left them. And, and so that's kind of how I, we attain materials. But for the holy grail of Georgia football, um, you know, I just talked about the 1897 team. Yeah. So uh, that season ended early because of the death of Von Gammon. And Von G uh, the Georgia State Legislature actually voted to ban football in the state of Georgia after that tragedy. So the governor was, Governor Atkinson was set to sign the bill that would ban football. And think of Georgia, how different it would be now. Oh, wow. Yes. Football was a misdemeanor. Um, 
but von Gammon's mother actually wrote a letter to the governor to say that she didn't think that the game should be banned. Uh, it was something that von Gammon loved. It was a tragic accident, but she hoped that other young men would have the chance to play it. And that that letter is, I think, the holy grail of Georgia football. Uh, we, we don't really know where it ended up, but there are always rumors that it's out there, but I've never seen it. I've never seen any real evidence that exists, but hopefully one day it'll turn up for us. Well, if anybody in our audience knows where that letter might be, uh, we'll we'll get them in contact with you. Of course, you know, we, we talk a lot about football and, uh, you know, the success at the University of Georgia's hand in football obviously leads to that. But, of course, you know, Georgia's got all kinds of sports, you know, 27, 28 uh, team sports uh, that have histories themselves. What about some of the interesting history items, uh, maybe from uh, basketball or track and field or, or golf? You know, Georgia is has a wide range of sports and has been successful in those sports. What about some of the interesting things that you have in your collection uh, outside of, of uh, football? You know, I'm, I'm glad you asked. People always ask about football, and I think rightly so. It's, it's, the, it's the sport that generates the most attention, but the archives is not just for football. It's, it's for all the sports, and I want every sport to be represented. Uh, the one thing that really comes to mind immediately is, of course, Georgia's fantastic success in tennis, right. uh, both men's and women's tennis. Uh, with Coach McGill, Coach Dan McGill, who was Georgia's legendary tennis coach uh, for, for many years, from the 50s into the 80s, won two national championships and was the NCAA's all-time winningest coach uh, in any sport when he retired and after the 88 season. Uh, we actually have his archives. He His his papers are uh, about 30 boxes of, of Dan McGill's papers are here in, in the special collections libraries. The family very generously donated them when he passed. And so it's such a wonderful look into how tennis at UGA was, was built, how it was administered, how the NCAA tournaments that were held here for so many years were administered. Uh, and of course, all the things that Coach Dan McGill did during his career, whether it be speaking, correspondence, that's all documented here. So it's a really wonderful look at the history of tennis at, at Georgia. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. There, and there are other things we have baseball, basketball, we have yeah. uh, track and field, Katura Orji, who is such a wonderful track and field athlete. She donated recently her uh, 2016 Rio Olympics track and field uniform to us. And uh, so these are, these are a lot of the things that you'll find in the archive that you maybe wouldn't think about. Yeah, I of course, you know, uh, Georgia and Georgia Tech. All right. You know, just just take that, for example, you know, the rivalry, the historic rivalry uh, between Georgia and Georgia Tech in football, but in all sports as well. Do you have a special section? Just in day to day life. Yeah, just in day to day life. Do you have a special section of, uh, you know, teams we love to hate? (laughs) Yeah, I just carry those internally. I, I do often get asked, who is our biggest rival? Uh, my answer will be Auburn. But yeah, yeah, um, so that the great thing about the archives is that's just all throughout the collection. You just see that all throughout. Uh, I, I'm not I, I think it would be fun to kind of pull out everything. And that may be a good idea for a future museum exhibit. Just pull out things from our biggest rivals and uh 
items and photographs related to the big moments in those rivalries. That could be a lot of fun. You know, when you 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 know you talk about history, but history is being made in the moment. Okay. You know, and and uh, so you know this this run that the University of Georgia football team has had uh, this historic run. Uh, it, it has, it's history. You know the back-to-back national championships. So as a historian yourself, when you, you know, when, when you're in the moment of history, do you look at an item and say, man, I'd love to have that? You know, you talked about Stetson Bennett's armband, you, you know, with the plays on it and everything. Uh, as a historian, do you ever think, you know, I need to go get that, you know, to put it in the collection? It, 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 does that kind of run across in your mind when you're watching in real time history being made? Yeah, absolutely, it does. Uh, whenever I'm watching a game, certainly in the, the playoff run that we've had the last couple of years, uh, it's it's always in my mind uh, as to what we're doing, uh, the importance it has historically in, in in terms of the rest of the in the context of the rest of the program, but also how to best document. Uh, I always have what I call my hundred year old, and. Certainly, we collect things for today. We collect them because we want to keep them. But I always think, in a hundred years, what will we need to have collected to say that we have best documented the program as it is now? I don't want my predecessor, you know, my successor, a hundred years from now, saying, "Gosh, what was Hasty doing back then? He wasn't. <laughs> he wasn't collecting things." So I always have that in mind of not just today, but what will we need in the future to best document our era. Uh, and certainly I look back and, and we have eras that are much better documented than others. Uh, the 40s are wonderfully documented. Yeah. The 80s are wonderfully documented. Uh, we have some great times in the 60s. And that's just that's just football. And there's certainly in other sports as well, there are eras that are really well documented, some not so much. Uh, so it's, it's always a, a, a struggle for me to Say, you know, what can we do and how can we best document Sarah? How can we best show what our student athletes and our coaches are doing right now? And then how can we preserve that for the future? And of course, the cool thing, you know, from 1890s, you didn't have media, uh, you know, the visual media, you, you know, you couldn't document things in that way. But now you can. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, that. I would assume that would make things easier, you know, to uh, show in real time from uh, the media uh, standpoint. You know, uh, you talk a lot about we talk a lot about the football team, basketball team. What about women's sports in uh, at UGA? You know, a fantastic history in women's uh, women's basketball, uh, tennis uh, as well in golf. What about uh, you know? Talk a little bit about how we document the contribution of women's sports to the life of the University of Georgia. Sure, and that's that's a point of emphasis for me. Um, when we took in the Athletic Association archives, uh, when this building opened, uh, women's sports had not really been well-documented. Uh, and that's something that I have been working to correct because it is a huge part of the story of athletics at Georgia. And, and you think of women's athletics, you think of the success of the women's tennis teams, the, the perfect 10 national championships of the gymnastics team, uh, the swim and dive teams. So that is something that I'm working, that is a kind of a hole in the archives that I'm working to fill. And unfortunately with archives, things don't always move quickly. Um, so it is an ongoing process and I'm 
hoping as we go along to add more and more women's items. I've been able over the years to add uh, quite a bit, but there's always more to be added. Uh, and one of the ways we go about doing this is talking to people. You know, whenever I'm at a public event or, or talking to someone, say, hey, you know, this is something that we're trying to do. This is an area that I'd like to have better documented in, in, the, in the collection uh, to better represent, again, what our student athletes, what our, our coaches are doing. And women's sports is certainly uh, a huge area of emphasis. Uh, the other thing that I do every year, I do a, a different type of a, a museum exhibit that explores a different topic in Georgia sports history. Of course, 1972 uh, saw the passage of Title IX, which really opened up uh, college uh, collegiate athletics to women. And so for last year's, uh, last fall's exhibit, I did a large scale exhibit about the history and development of women's sports on campus, uh, dating back to the PE and intramural years, the 1920s really continuing to today. And so that's another way of just publicizing. We have this rich history. You know, here are some things that we have, but in talking to people about what we have on display, uh, it's always a good opportunity to say, hey, we need more. We need to document this better. And let's, if, if there are things out there, please, you know, consider donating them to the library and to the archives. Of course, uh, February is, uh, you know, Black History Month. And uh, I, you know, <laughs> The, the history of the African-American athlete at uh, the University of Georgia, uh, you know, for a longer time, you had segregation and, you sure. know, and the, the uh, opportunity for African-Americans was limited as far as being involved at the University of Georgia in athletics. What about that aspect? Uh, do you do something special during something like Black History Month to highlight the contribution of African-American uh, you know, uh, athletes uh, to the University of Georgia, which is, you know, you can't measure it. No, you can't. And, and certainly not only athletes, but all the people who worked behind the scenes, uh, certainly the era of segregation, people like Clegg Starks or uh, Squab Jones, men who work for the athletic department for almost essentially their whole lives or were associated with the athletic department for almost their whole lives. <clears throat> but of course, never had the opportunity to get on the field uh, in any capacity beyond working. And certainly that's something that we we have to remember and we have to acknowledge. Uh, or just the building of Sanford Stadium. Um, many people don't realize that as with most large scale construction projects in the state of Georgia before World War II, convict labor, which was mostly black labor, was, was used in the construction process. Uh, to do the manual labor, the digging, the pouring, the foundations. Uh, most of that work was done by convicts, and Sanford Stadium was one of those construction projects. So when we look back at the history of building Sanford Stadium, uh, which is, of course, coming up on its 100th anniversary, you know, we have to remember that that was the labor was done by men who were not really necessarily given an option uh, about whether they wanted to or not they weren't necessarily paid and that they were almost exclusively uh, black laborers. And uh, certainly they did not have the opportunity to play for Georgia or to even see a game in Sanford. So we have to you know, certainly remember that as well. But getting back to your question, it is, that is a lot. It is, is a long history that we have to be cognizant of. We have to be aware of 
Uh, I spoke a moment ago about uh, the museum exhibits that I do every fall. Uh, last year, of course, uh, last year, excuse me, I'm still in 2022 in my mind. <laughs> yes. um, back in 2021, of course, that was the 50th anniversary of the, the signing of the first five Black athletes to the football team. And so I wanted to commemorate that by doing an exhibit, exploring the history of um, the intersection, or the history of not only that event, but the integration of our team going back to pre-World War II all the way up to today, because there are certainly events that are happening today that impact um, Black people getting more experience, getting more uh, uh, opportunity, I should rather say, in, in athletics here. So that exhibit was up. And there's a digital exhibit called, um, oh goodness, my, my brain just went blank. Uh, my, there's a digital exhibit that's up uh, that people can explore that history uh, can they explore the ex the experience of these people um, in that's certainly something that we we will be promoting as well. So there's it's such a large topic, and I try to make it something that permeates everything that we do. Um, we acknowledge that segregation happened. We acknowledge that people had limited opportunity had no opportunities because of this, their skin color, um, and try to really just make that, keep that at the forefront of what, what, what we're doing, make sure that people acknowledge and remember these things. I, I don't think I would be doing a good job as a historian if I, if I buried that. Well, history has its good and its bad, you know, and it is, you, you can't change it or color it. You just have to present it. And, and uh, I think that's good for all of us to do. You know, I'm of the age, I, I think back sometimes the earliest football coach. And, you know, as a kid, when I was a kid, the earliest football coach I can remember, and I know I'm dating myself here is Wally Butts. I mean, Wally Butts, uh, the, uh, of course at the, I was at uh, young at the tail end of, of his career. Uh, and, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things about Wally Butts is that, uh, he had a clash with Saturday evening post, oh, a kind of an interesting item in history. Talk a little bit about about that sure so the the saturday evening post scandal um with that you really have to go back a little ways into the end of wally butt's tenure at georgia i think we all know that the 1950s were not the best decade for georgia football yeah. and there are a lot of reasons some relating to wally butts some relating to the university uh that were just totally out of coach butts control so it was it was a difficult period all around, and it was a difficult period for the university itself. And that uh, kind of flowed over into athletics. So Coach Butts won one last SEC championship in 59, and then coached, uh, of course, Grant Tarkenton was, was quarterback for that. Then he coached in 1960, but fan support and alumni support had really started to move against Coach Butts. And there was a, a an idea that he really he had coached too long and it may be time for him to move on. So he retired as football coach, but remained athletic director. And that wasn't necessarily uh, a satisfactory arrangement. Um, Johnny Griffith was hired as our head football coach. Uh, it's debatable as to how much influence Coach Butts had in hiring him. Uh, some 
indications are that that decision wasn't entirely in his hands, even though he was athletic director. And it was an awkward arrangement. He was overseeing the football program, even though he had been kind of removed from the football program. Uh, so just, again, not the best arrangement. Yeah. And like most coaches in that day, because salaries for coaches back then were not what they are now, he had to have business interests outside of his coaching career. And, and Wally Butts had not always been super successful in some of his interests. Um, and he, but he'd found a place at an insurance agency in Atlanta. And this seems like a strange divergence, but it, it comes into play later on. So Coach Butts, one of his good friends, was a man named Paul Bear Bryant. Yeah. Any fan of Southern football knows who Bear Bryant is. And if you don't, I, I can recommend a couple of good books to you. Um, so they were good friends. They had a long-standing relationship dating back to the 1940s. So 1960, or end of 1962, uh, I apologize if my date on that is wrong. Uh, a gentleman was calling the insurance agency that Wally Butts was associated with. And somehow, some way, he claimed that the wires on the phone call got crossed and he ended up hearing a conversation between Wally Butts and Bear Bryant. This gentleman said that he didn't know much about football, but he recognized the names and he decided to continue to listen in on the phone call uh, and make notes about it, which seems strange to me. Uh, I, I would probably just hang up and let Say that was odd, but I'm not going to listen on a private phone call. Later on, he alleged that the conversation that he heard between Butts and Bryant was one where Butts and Bryant were, it was 1962, were conspiring to fix the 1962 Georgia-Alabama game. Hmm. Now, as a, as a lifelong Georgia fan, it pains me to say this. There was no reason to fix the 1962 Georgia. <laughs> that was one of the worst ever teams we ever had. Uh, you know, you hate, you hate to say that. And Alabama had some guy named Joe Namath at quarterback. Um, you know, they were, they were pretty good that year. Yeah. So he alleged that they were conspiring to fix this game. Butts was giving uh, Brian inside information on our players and our, our some things that are for his defensive uh, players to watch for, things we were, were tipping off. And so eventually uh, these notes got to the Saturday Evening Post, which had been a very major publication in the 30s and 40s and 50s, but had really declined. And they were kind of at that point where they were starting to look to get into scandalous reporting to generate sales, you know, so these days, we would say they were trying to get clicks on their website or wherever, but right. back then they were hoping to sell magazines by, by reporting on scandal. And they put out an article about this conversation alleging that Butts and Bryant were, uh, were fixing the game. And it was very difficult for Georgia, as you might imagine. And it was very difficult for Bear Bryant. 
um, Bear Bryant, I will say, had had run-ins with the Post previously. They had a, run an article alleging that he coached a very brutal form of football. And he had actually taken them to court uh, for libel. So Butts and Bryant sued the Saturday Evening Post for libel. And libel laws, I'm not a lawyer. I will only give very general, my general understanding of this. Libel laws were in this country at, at that point were such that they really only covered public figures, but they they um, defined public figures essentially as politicians. Yeah. So private individuals were really not covered by libel laws or didn't apply to them. Again, that may be a, a terrible interpretation, but I'm not a lawyer. So Butts and Bryant sued and won. Uh, they they won a, a large settlement. Uh, Bryant actually settled out of court, but the onus of the article really fair, fell on on Wally Butts. They portrayed him as kind of a failed businessman and, and a sad figure. Um, so he was suing as much to save his reputation as much as as to get any kind of money or to, to you know take this article out. Um, but he eventually won. Now the case did go to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ended up siding with, with Butts. And it changed libel law in this country to really apply to uh, not just politicians, but anyone in the public sphere who's been who's been slandered in print or, or wherever. So it ended up being kind of a landmark uh, case legally. But it was a very difficult time for Georgia. Anytime, of course, you have a, a gambling accusation going against your university and going against a man who had previously been a very well-respected coach it harms you one of the one of the aside from the legal ramifications of this one of the things that it did was to cause butts eventually resigned as athletic director he was he realized that he was just causing too much distraction i think the university was was kind of glad at that point that he could leave and distance themselves from him uh, but it caused Dr. O.C. Adderhold, who is president of the university, to hire someone from the outside to come in and really clean up the athletic department and get it going forward again, uh, where it had not been in such great shape in the 50s. So he hired Joel Eaves. Joel Eaves brought in Ben Stoolsby. Yeah. So we are living in the aftermath of the Butts Bryant Saturday Evening Post scandal. Yeah. In that okay. way. It should be a movie. It should be a movie. <laughs> For, and the, you know, the Stetson Bennett story, it's got to be a movie, you oh, know? Yeah. And uh, so, uh, well, listen, it, it's been great to have uh, Jason Hasty with us. He's the athletic uh, historian, athletics historian and archivist at the University of Georgia. Uh, Jason, it's a pleasure having you on our program. I get to listen to your stories all day long. You know, I, I just love history myself. And when it's related to our beloved University of Georgia, it's so fascinating uh, to uh, to hear that. And and once again, give us your location and where people can actually go and visit you and visit uh, you know your section of the library. Sure. No, we're in the Russell Special Collections Libraries. Uh, it's on Hull Street uh, on campus. Uh, like I said, it's right across from the new Terry College campus, right behind the old Holiday Inn, uh, right on Hull Street. So we're open eight five Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, and eight seven Tuesday Thursdays. So we don't have any weekend hours, but any certainly anybody who is here in Athens during the week, 
uh, can come and visit us. And I will say, though, that uh, you don't have to be just in Athens to visit uh, because every summer I do a tour of public libraries around the state. I take 45, 50 artifacts from the Athletic Association archives to uh, seven or eight different public libraries uh, for a day. People can come in. It's totally free. They want to listen to my stories. I'll talk their ear off. They want to see some cool stuff. They can do that. Uh, this summer, we'll be going to Tucker, Eatonton, uh, Canton, uh, Young Harris. We'll be going to Bainbridge, and Valdosta. And uh, so we've got one more set up as well, but that has not gotten on the books yet. But we'll, we'll be all around the state, so keep an eye out for that as well. Indeed, we'll be looking for that. Well, thank you, Jason, for being with us today on our program. And hey, go dogs, right? Go dogs, absolutely. Thank you all for having me on. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Dogs on Demand would like to thank Southeast Mortgage, the official home loan lender of the Georgia Bulldogs, for sponsoring our program today. When the time comes to finance or refinance your home, make the smart choice and get your home loan from Southeast Mortgage. Your friends at Southeast Mortgage are ready to help you. Visit southeastmortgage.com slash UGA today for more information. Be sure to visit Dogs on Demand on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and our great interactive website, dogsondemand.com. Join us for our next program as we keep you up to date with the latest sports news from the University of Georgia and more. Until then, be safe and go dogs.